Good morning, everyone. Welcome, visitors. See a lot of you today. I'm excited to be continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians. And today, we're going to be going through 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Today, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. I'll give you all a minute to turn there. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Father, search our hearts and know us this morning and reveal to us any wrongdoing in our lives. Allow us to treasure your word. Allow us to look to you through your word that we can endure through this life, through whatever trials may come, that we may remain faithful to the end, reliant completely on you. Father, for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who has yet to be reconciled with you, I ask that you would open up their hearts today, that they would see you and know you to be completely good. Thank you for your son. It's, his, it's in his name that I pray. Amen. How many of you have a spiritual hero, a spiritual role model? I have a few people who come to my mind thinking on this, people on my list who I've really sought to imitate in my life. Well, in this text today, Paul's going to continue to demonstrate or to model what the authentic Christian life is to look like. And of course, this isn't an exact science. We're not going to go through the same exact things that Paul did, but the model is here. Initial salvation, enduring through trials, and being content in that. Paul showed us how to run the race. And I know that many of you listening, your legs may be tired. This text will renew your strength for another day. This text will spur you on. It will give you a second wind. This text will remind you to live for Christ today, to endure till the end, and to see 
that it is worth it. This text will remind you to live for Christ today, to endure to the end, and to see that God is worth it. Starting in verses one through three, Paul says this. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no faults may be found in our ministry. Last time we looked at 2 Corinthians together, we saw God as the great reconciler. We read that through Christ Jesus, God has been working to reconcile people to himself. He does this by entreating his people with his grace and by fully discounting their trespasses against him. Now, the question must be asked, how can a completely righteous God overlook our iniquities? The righteous action for God to take would be to avenge himself, would be to punish us for our lawlessness because we wronged him. This must be clear. Our sin deals primarily with God. And in sinning, we have wronged God. So again, I ask, how is it possible that a completely righteous God overlooks our iniquities? The correct answer is that he can't, save for the reversing of the roles between his son, Jesus Christ, and us. He is restricted by his nature in the same way that it is not possible for God to lie, it is not possible for a righteous God to overlook iniquities. So, in order for God to go about his work of reconciliation, of bringing us into a relationship with him, leading to salvation, he was mandated by his own nature to rectify the sin. And so his son, Jesus Christ, willingly took on the cross in our place, for our sake, so that God could display his wrath and maintain his righteousness. Jesus Christ received what he did not deserve so that we could receive what we did not deserve. The lengths to which God went in order to make a way for us to be with him were of the greatest extent. And so that brings us to this text today where Paul makes his appeal to not just hear about so great a salvation and yet not care. Clearly, Paul was concerned with the unredeemed members of the church of Corinth. When Paul says not to receive this grace in vain, he does not mean to infer that those who are saved can somehow render their salvation purposeless. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And although our proclivity for sin can be a way of stifling spiritual growth, is it not so that he whom he justifies, he will sanctify? And he whom he sanctifies, he will also glorify. We do not have the power to render our salvation useless because if we could, we would. Our Father preserves his children. So in verse two, Paul presses more onto this call to repentance, claiming that the favorable time <clears throat> is now and the day of salvation is today. He quotes from Isaiah 49, eight, 
a text bringing us into a conversation between God and Christ where God says in verse six, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one, to one deeply despised, <clears throat> abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. And so God, being rich in love, sent and preserved his son on earth so that Christ could be given as a covenant to his people to restore the people of Israel from exile, and not just that, but to be a light to the Gentiles unto salvation. You see, many may interpret that passage in Isaiah to simply be talking about the restoration of Israel as God brings them back to the land and out of exile. But this is simply not a high enough view of this passage. If this is all Isaiah was writing of, then the relatively low amount of Jews who returned and all of the hardships and trials that they faced in light of that would fall drastically short of the glorious description that Isaiah paints for us. No, God is not merely talking about restoring a nation to its land, but he's talking about restoring all nations to himself. He's talking about bringing not just the Jews, but all of the world into this salvation. Doesn't this make your heart burst? Through Christ, we have been grafted in to the tree of salvation and welcomed in to God's family. And guess what? If you don't know Christ today, if you don't know God and haven't been reconciled to him, you don't have to wait. If you've not become reconciled with God, if you haven't experienced for yourself this grace, this mercy, there are no barriers Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. All who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy milk and wine without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name that he may show compassion to you. There are no hoops you have to jump through. There's no interview that you have to go through. There's no price for this ticket. The invitation is out there. If you are thirsty, you can drink now. If you're hungry, you can eat now. And guess what? Not only do you not have to wait, but you shouldn't want to wait. We in America are a funny people. We hate to wait for things, but we love to put things off. We all hear the assignments for the semester when we go through the syllabus at the beginning of the year in the fall or the spring, and yet, how many of us actually start that project before the week it's due? Very few. 
And yet, there are some things that we would never want to put off. We never want to put off the things that excite us most. I mean, people used to wait in massive lines when the iPhone came out, and then the next iPhone came out, and they did it again when the next iPhone came out. When you get a water break at practice, hardly anybody on the team delayed taking that drink. Here at Cedarville, it seems like people can't wait to get married. <laughs> and for the most part, these are all good things. People get excited for these things because to some degree or another, they anticipate that some sort of satisfaction will come to them from these things. The satisfaction of having brand new cutting edge technology at our fingertips. The satisfaction of a drink of water for our tired and overheated bodies. The satisfaction of the intimacy of knowing someone so completely. These are good things. And yet, there are many of us who don't know the value of our own souls. There are many of us who don't understand the value of our eternal destination, who don't know the value of knowing God. And if this is you, don't take this as me condemning you for this, but take this as me encouraging you because if you don't know God, you can. You do not have to wait for him to find out who you are or for somebody to introduce you because he has already given you an invitation. And knowing him will bring you more satisfaction than anything else in this world and any other thrill that this world could produce. You don't have to wait, and you shouldn't want to wait. And this is exactly why Paul says in verse three, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And let's trace this argument here by looking at the positive form of this sentence. We can change it and say, if we put an obstacle in anyone's way, there would be fault found with our ministry. In other words, Paul is saying, you can be reconciled to God today. Come to him today because there's no list of requirements you need to meet. There's no indulgences that you have to pay us. There's nothing that you can give us. And Paul's able to say this because, as he reminded us in the previous chapter, the price that the sinner did owe to God was paid by his son, Jesus Christ. And for any of you discouraged here, because those close to you don't seem to get it, because those close to you don't seem to understand that salvation is open to them today, that today is the day of salvation, take heart and remember that the burden is not on you. Jesus said that all who the Father gives to him will come to him, and they will not be cast out. His sheep hear his voice and they will come. There's no lack of surety here. God will accomplish his purposes. For as the snow and the rain fall from heaven and do not return there, but bring water to the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall it be with God's word that goes out from his mouth. It shall not return to him empty but it will accomplish that which he purposes. And just as God is the one who secures our salvation, he also secures us in our salvation. When God saves us, he also preserves us and empowers us to endure. There's hardly a sweeter thing than knowing a saint who has lived their life well as they stepped, and as they stepped into glory they were proven faithful. 
and welcomed home by our Heavenly Father. I think we can all resonate to some degree with the example of Tim Keller, 72 years of life, nearly 35 years of full-time ministry, enduring the trials of life, including two different cancer diagnoses, one of which forced him from the pulpit for multiple months, and the other one which, after years of faithful, wholehearted service to God, would result in him entering into glory early last summer. We could see Keller's genuineness as he lived in the public light, and the way he lived demonstrated his genuine commitment to God. And this genuineness authenticated all the words of his ministry. In the same way, Paul calls on the Corinthians to see his genuineness by telling the Corinthians of his endurance. And so this is what Paul says in verses four through eight. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. In verses four and five, Paul gives a pretty extensive list of things that he had to endure in his ministry. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. There's a long list. For many of us, following Paul's example can seem overwhelming. Obviously, this is not an exact foreshadowing of what our lives will look like. It isn't like Paul set the affliction quota that we all have to meet. No, but yet, remaining a faithful follower of Christ in the trials that we will have to deal with in life is certainly no easy task. Unfortunately, just as we can all probably think of the Tim Kellers in our lives, we can probably all think of an example of someone who didn't finish the race well, of a minister who fell. And with that, the disappointment, the discouragement, and the hurt that comes with it. Friends, none of us wants to fall short None of us wants to die on the brink of the promised land. None of us wants to endure for a time and then fall off right before the finish. We all like being commended and what better commendation to receive than to hear, well done, you stayed faithful from the one who is esteemed as higher than all other beings. I don't know about you all, but as I read this, I just can't help but to wonder how. How did Paul endure all of this? How did Paul endure so much and yet remain faithful? I mean, I can get discouraged by the smallest of things. I get burned out from having too much school on my plate. And I'm a business major. I can't even begin to fathom the afflictions that Paul has gone through. I mean, hardships, calamities, and everything else that Paul said he endured. Paul must have just been cut from a different cloth except he wasn't, he wasn't. Now listen, I doubt many of us have had a list of afflictions that spans quite as long as Paul's list does. But yet, many of us are still worn down 
by many very real, very hard situations. But the very same God who empowered Paul, a man who once stood as far from God as you can get, is the same God who now preserves you. In the same way he brought Paul into his family, he has brought you into his family. In the same way that he preserved Paul throughout his entire life, he will preserve you. And not just for the trials that are to come, but even for the season that you are in right now. The God who is the standard for all good, for all holiness, will work to fill you with himself. Therefore, tuning your heart to desire what God sees as good, which is true good. So that whatever trials you face, whatever temptations come, by devotion and reliance on God, you can march through to the end. It is by this reliance, such as we saw in chapters one and three, that Paul is, in spite of the afflictions he lists in verses four and five, able to live, as he writes in verses six through eight, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor and slander and praise. Now, that's easy to say. If you're having a hard time, just look to God. But what does that even mean? I mean what does that mean? Okay, God, my, my car just died and I don't know how to afford another one right now. I'm looking to you, so... Now what? No, you can't see him that way by looking up at the ceiling of our chapel. He's the invisible God. And yet, he has revealed himself tangibly to us through his word. So, you wanna look to God? Look to his word. All scripture is given to us by inspiration from God. Look to his word. You want to endure all trials and remain faithful? Look to God by looking to his word. Our daily reading of scripture allows us to store God's word in our heart, which enables us to endure the trials that we are currently going through and it prepares us for the trials yet to come. This is why daily spiritual disciplines are so important. My friends, Daily spiritual disciplines are not legalistic. They are life-giving. The more time that you look at God's word, the more that you will see God. And as you gaze upon his glory, you will be transformed more and more into the very image of glory that you are gazing upon. So, as Paul writes out the qualities that characterize his ministry and shows that even in light of the trials he's faced in life, his life is patterned by godliness, he authenticates his ministry and his claim in verse one of working together with God. Or as he says in the previous chapter, being the means by which God makes his appeal to people to come to him. Friends, Paul has shown us time and time again that in evangelism, it is not a, do as I say, not as I do, but as a 
do as I say and look at what I do task. Our private lives will do one of two things for our public ministry. Either they will authenticate the genuineness of our public ministry or they will expose the lack of it. They will either authenticate the genuineness of our public ministry or our actions will expose the lack of it. And so finally, in verses eight through 10, Paul shows us that in the end, faithful endurance will prove worth it. In the end, faithful endurance will prove worth it. We've seen that today is the day of salvation. We have seen that salvation brings endurance. And now we see that in the end, faithful endurance will prove worth it. We are, treated as, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. In this part of the text, we see Paul very clearly comparing his physical realities with spiritual realities. First, Paul says that despite being accused of being an imposter, he is true. We've already seen how in chapter three, Paul had to remind the Corinthians of the effects of his ministry as the conversions of many of the Corinthians were a direct result from that very ministry. So even though many deny Paul's authenticity, turning rather to the popular and powerful super apostles, Paul demonstrates to us that it is far more valuable to be seen as true in the eyes of God, as one watched by God, than as it is to be seen that way in the eyes of people. The next contrast that Paul makes is as unknown and yet well-known. Oh, do we have a desire to be known. Perhaps this is one of the deepest desires that we all have in us. If only people could really know me, if only people could really understand me, if they could really get me. How many of us living among literally thousands of people our age and with similar interests as us can't help but feel so lonely. And what about when we're out in the real world and not on a Christian campus where our faith may even alienate us in our jobs and other parts of our social circles? The thought of loneliness is one of the scariest thoughts that we can probably have at this stage of life. And yet God, who created the universe, who knows every star and galaxy by name, who has raised up every mountain and every molehill into existence, knows you. And not only does he know you, but he knows how many individual strands of hair that you have on your head. He knows every habit and tendency you have. He knows every thought you've ever had, every deed that you've ever done. He knows more about you than anyone in this world ever could, even yourself. And yet, he loves you entirely. He knows you completely, and he loves you entirely. 
If you yearn to be known and to be loved, you do not need to keep looking. You already are in a greater capacity than any boss or friend or spouse or family ever could. Next, Paul makes a statement. Dying and yet we live, as punished and yet not killed. Paul has been on the edge of death in so many different ways and times in his ministry. In the most physical and literal way, Paul has continually been preserved. But in a much more profound sense, Paul was more alive than any of his persecutors. He was raised with Christ to newness of life. And because of that, Paul had access to commune with and to abide with the very source of life. And not only did Paul have access to God in that way, but God made a home inside of Paul's soul by sending his spirit to inhabit it. And he does the same with us. Because of this, we as Christians are the people who are the most alive. In verse 10, Paul finishes off the contrast. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Even in the hardest trials, Paul had a reason and a motivation to have joy. And that's because the longest imprisonments, the hardest beatings, the worst afflictions are not even a speck of dust on the surface of the glory of the gospel. To compare the sorrow of our trials to the joy of God's saving grace is to compare a lit match to the blazing sun. I don't want to make light of the real terrible things that many of you might be going through even now. But I do want to encourage you that there is no news bad enough that it will outweigh the good news of Christ's saving gospel. And this salvation is everything. Paul says they're treated as having nothing yet having everything. This salvation is everything. In sharing it with others, Paul was able to make others rich in a way that this world never could. Oh yes, it outweighs it all. Yes, you can have influences and riches and houses and cars and boats and lovers and followers, but if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. It is better to be a homeless person in the streets who knows Jesus than to be Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Elon Musk. Because when that day comes, the homeless man who endured the trials of hunger and loss and sadness, who loved Jesus faithfully till the end, will be with God forever. They will get to enjoy God forever. And on that day, the self-reliant billionaire CEO who seemed to have everything will find that he has no foundation to stand on. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Nothing. It profits him nothing. When you are reconciled with God, it's not merely that you have something. It's not even merely that you have a good thing. It's not even merely that you have the best thing, but it is that you have everything. 
When you have Christ, you have everything. And so, my friends, run the race. Your legs may get tired, your heart may get heavy, but God has gone through miraculous lengths to save you. So why would he ever let you go? God has saved you and he will continue to preserve you. And one day, when you look back on your life and the Lord is soon to call you home, you will not regret anything that you did not have in this world if you have Christ. Having Christ is to be known and loved to the depths of your being. Having Christ is having comfort that no matter how this life pans out, you've already won. Having Christ is having rest for your soul. My friends, having Christ is everything. Through Christ, you can be saved where you already are. Through Christ, you are given endurance. Through Christ, you have something more valuable than everything else in this world combined. Therefore, when you have Christ, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, you have graciously and abundantly provided for us in more ways than we could ever count. And no matter what hardship or affliction come our way, I ask that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, to remain faithful, knowing that you will preserve us to the end, that there is no sheep that can be snatched out of your hand. And Father, for anyone that doesn't know you today, call them to you, reminding them that today is the day of salvation, that your son has come and he has lived and died and was risen again. And we have access to you and salvation through him. Father, help us to persevere, give us an eternal perspective. And even today, as we go throughout our day, may our focus be entirely on you. Thank you for your son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.